Okay, I'm going to go on to uh, Ash, uh, Ash O's question. This is more in search of a personal comment from Tom or anyone who feels that I guess my inquiring ego wants to know. Recently, I have been experiencing a rather difficult time. This is somewhat novel since beginning the journey of consciously getting rid of fear and becoming love to the best of my ability. Of course, there have always been challenges and problems to solve, resolutions to learn from, all that great growing potential stuff that is really effective when you can take on the perception of what can I learn from this. How can I help? And challenge yourself to become the best, most compassionate, caring, loving you that you can be. I'd say my progress is all around me, in all my relationships and my daily attitude. First, I want to thank you so much for creating this opportunity to help. It's a lot of effort, but this community has really been a big part of my growth. So thank you. Given my perspective of everything is the way it should be, no matter what happens, I'll do my best to be love. So far, this pattern has come up. I wake up, have a goal of learning a particular aspect of a subject or just simply having a wonderful day with friends or alone, go to work, solve some problems, learn some lessons, help the people around me the best I can. Maybe some other problems or quests come up. I'm present and attentive as I help resolve them with compassion. Not because it's what I'm supposed to do or acting, because after trying that for a bit, I clearly see that being courageous and caring simply are the things, the best things to be. Sure, I slip up at some times, but I'd say about 85 to 95% of the time, I'm happily chuggling along, um, exploring, learning, contemplating, theorizing, reflecting and helping. There is an aspect of my life, a change in a deep family-like romantic relationship that even though I honor, accept, and fully understand deep down that everything is okay, we are simply using our free will to make the best choices for us. I love this person for who she is, not for what she does. I don't feel attached to any ideas or have any inkling of exercising any sort of control over the situation doing my best not to make it about me and seeing the bigger picture of how truly wonderful life is. I don't have any I wish this or wish that thoughts. I've reflected both with her and by myself about the choices I, we have made and the outcomes and even though we make mistakes, we have learned from them. And our intention was always to simply love. She even says that she feels it. And I feel her, she means it. And I love her absolutely unconditionally. The only way to love, as we were talking about earlier. And when I say that this was a family-like romantic relationship, I mean we were basically husband and wife. Ours is an open, polyamorous kind well, where we supported each other to the best of our abilities to express who we are, to not limit but enrich our experience. We were, in my heart, with respect to her expression, so close. To me, she is the one. Recently, she has distanced herself from me and expressed a change in our relationship. And I fully accept her wishes, of course. I'm grateful for existence and excited for the future. And I'm also deeply missing her, her closeness. Not just closeness that I could experience from other relationships, but her. 
She is and always will be, honey. And no matter the future, how bright and amazing it is, she's not a part of it by choice. I accept it. But I will miss her so much. And previously, all other times I have felt sorrow or sadness. All I had to do was either learn more of the situation or change my perspective, and the hurt naturally turned into a positive feeling of sorts. And I'm happy to experience that she's happy. I'm grateful for everything and everyone. This is the first time that it feels like the two ways it could go are, and we were together again, happy together again, or, and life went on, was beautiful as ever, but this boy missed her every day until his last, in his current approximate form. And I'm here. It's scary, but I'm a bit of a fear-ridder novel, novice. It feels like so, although I'm not afraid. I'm more curious about what I can learn from this. And if someone with more experience would have anything of value to communicate with me so that I could grow more and help more. I don't know how you talk so much. I'm, I'm running out of steam. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm already <laughs> collapsing. I understand that I know basically nothing. And everything stated is simply my best attempt at communicating my current quality, my intention, and my feelings to the best of my ability. Again, thank you. So he, he just wants a comment from you on what he's been experiencing and what he's trying to do. So let me summarize and tell me if I get this right. And that is, he's had this, this great uh, uh, love relationship with a lady. And that was a was a uh, unconditional love, and I should mention unconditional a relationship really only requires one to love unconditionally, and you can have a good relationship. Uh, it doesn't have to be two people capable of that, but one is enough. And anyhow, in order to have a good relationship that works. So he had this good relationship, and it was love, and it was unconditional, and it was happy, but now it's gone away. And his partner has decided to go elsewhere and do other things with other people, and he wishes her well and is happy for her her uh, continued growth, but it leaves him very sad, and he's wondering how to deal with that sadness. Is that basically... It, in a, in a very short version. That is it. And, it, and it's a lot of what you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's more curious about what he can learn from this, I guess, yeah. is, the, is well, his real question. He should learn a lot from this. For one, it's going to push him, you know, as far as learning goes, to actually live up to all the things that, he <clears throat> believes in. So now he's in the situation of having to deal with it and deal with it with positiveness, letting her go with positiveness and then dealing with it with positiveness. Because there are a lot of times there's things that are great theory, but hard 
to actually practice. And this is one of those things. So one thing he'll learn is to walk, walk the talk and actually practice, you know, the, you know, the theory. And he seems to be doing that. But it's still sad, and it will be sad, but life goes on, and new things will happen, and new adventures will create themselves. New people will come into his life. New things will happen. He will end up in not that long a future, you know, within a year or two years, he will, three years, he'll end up looking back and realizing that it was for the best. It was the best thing because what happens next is going to be even better. And right now he can't imagine that. He can't really imagine anything being any better. And that's what gives him pause. Uh, well, what's going to happen? What should I do next? But he will find that if he walks the talk and keeps up his, his feeling and his attitude of love and giving and does not develop fear or, or self-pity or, you know, ego, any of that sort of thing, he'll find that in the near future, things will have worked out such that they're actually more profitable for him, and he's learning and growing even more than he did before. So that would be my comment to him. It's only going to get better. Just uh, stay focused and be true to yourself. Don't just act. I think he already said that. He, he knows the difference between acting and being. So acting, putting on a brave face is not helpful. But actually being this and having the right attitude, which he seems to have, just maintain that. And you will find that no matter how good it was before, it's only likely to get better. So just be open, continue to make good choices, and see what happens. A newer adventure is about to unfold. All right. Thank you. He's obviously put so much work into into being better that that mm -hmm. uh, seems to be the only uh, prospect is that things will be better. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, all right, let's go on to the next question. Um, the invention of math. Boy, we have a varied line of questions here today. <laughs> mm -hmm. Tom, do you think math in general was invented by humans or is math used by the LCS and we simply discover it? Is math the fundamental base on which our reality or maybe even the LCS itself exists? And if the LCS ex itself exists based on math, wouldn't it be logical that an even higher source invented the LCS? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, math is fundamental, yes. What math is, is the logic of quantity. Okay, just the logic of quantity. That's it. Math is about quantity, things, you know, numbers, count, quantity. All the things you can do with numbers and all the rules about numbers, about, you know, explanation and differentiation and integration and all the things you can do are all about quantity. So math is the logic of quantity. Now assume that you are a larger, well, you're not the larger conscious system yet. You're just a budding piece of consciousness that 
just a little while ago could only tell state A from state B. You only had a one and a zero, and that's all you had to work with. But you're evolving, and you're looking for meaning for things. You know, what does that one mean? You know, what do the patterns mean that you can make with ones and zeros? What can you do with it? And what's significant? You see, it's not just building up patterns for the sake of patterns. Yes, there is some lower entropy in a pattern as opposed to a random collection of things, but that's not where the entropy gets lowered the most. It gets lowered the most when those patterns have meaning, when those patterns are useful, when those patterns help you learn more. See, patterns that are meaningful. Uh, maybe I'll take a little digression from math here. Now, let me give you an example. You know, if you have, if you have uh, children, let's say you have five children, and you take your children, and they're all running around, and they're playing, and they're making noise, and so on, and you get all your children, and you make them stand in a row. Okay, you've lowered the entropy. Now all your children are standing in a row. They've been ordered. Maybe you even order them from the tallest to the shortest. So they're all ordered by height or ordered by age. And just because you've ordered them, that is a little bit lower entropy. But it's such a tiny little smidgen of a little bit entropy that it really doesn't matter. It's not productive. It doesn't do anything. The fact that you love those children, hug them, support them, and, and are very positive with them, now that can lower some entropy. That can make a big, you know, big chunk of entropy go away, lowers entropy. So when you think about entropy, it's not just order, it's about meaning, significance. And why does being nice to them and, and being kind and supportive of your children, why does that lower their entropy? Because it makes them kinder. It makes them more cooperative. It makes them more loving and caring. And they go out into the world like that with lower entropy to help other people become more kind and loving and caring, you see? So it not only lowers their entropy, but entropy in general for the system because you're just because of your kindness. So that kindness and caring and support is a much bigger entropy lowering process than making your children all stand in line by height. You see? So when we think about lowering entropy, don't just think of patterns. Think of meaning, significance. All right, so now you're this this uh, very just beginning consciousness, and you have ones and zeros. You have different states that you can be in, and you can make patterns and things out of them. How are you going to find meaning in these patterns? Well, one of the obvious ways that you will find meaning in these patterns is by quantity, right? Numbers, things, counting. That's just one way of finding order. And that order has a deeper meaning because quantity is something you can really manipulate. There's lots of things, lots of logic that has to do with quantity. All of the math that we know is all the logic of quantity. So there's just so much you can do with that, and it's so meaningful. Of course, the system developed mathematics as part of its, its knowledge base, and that helped lower entropy because that math was powerful. Then when it got around to needing to make a virtual reality so that it, parts of itself could 
lower their entropy more effectively, well, it needed that math to create that virtual reality. The rule set, the initial conditions are all about quantity. The rule set creates a virtual reality based on quantity, right? There was a, there was a, a certain size ball of plasma that had a certain quantity describing temperature, quantity describing pressure, quantity describing what it was made of, quantity describing its extent. And the rule set were rules about quantity. So when the run button was hit, was hit how those quantities in that ball of plasma modified themselves had to do with the rules. And the rules were all about quantity. So you see, mathematics is essential to the creation of a virtual reality. It's essential to basic computer science. So, yes, math is no doubt a very fundamental aspect of the larger consciousness system. And we know that because of the virtual reality it created. It's a to create a virtual reality where things experience according to rule set is going to require a, a very deep understanding of quantity so it can compute shapes, volumes, weights, sizes. You know, these things are all quantity. Weights are quantity, sizes are quantity, volumes are quantity. All of them are quantity. So, yes, it does have math. And yes, we did come to the same conclusions. Uh, we live in this virtual reality based on mathematics, but we also are consciousness. And we were also just like that little consciousness was when it just had this state or that state. You know, we have quantity we deal with because our virtual reality is made with quantity. So we have five shiny stones, you know, and then we, we count them. Oh, I love my five shiny stones. And then somebody else gives us three more shiny stones. Oh, how many shiny stones do we have? You see, mathematics. Now we're going we're gonna to have uh, people do things for us and we need to pay them something. Okay, maybe we pay them in bananas or in chickens or in eggs or something else. It's just barter. But we have to know how much of this equals how much of that. Okay, quantity. How much is all about quantity. So just living here and having life here in this virtual reality, which is defined by quantity, people have to constantly deal with quantity, which means they are going to develop ways of counting, ways of bookkeeping, ways of assessing. So certainly our math, we figured out that math here in terms of this reality, just like the consciousness did. We're consciousness, and we came to those conclusions. And as we developed our mathematics, we found that we could model our reality with mathematics. Oh, isn't that nifty? Physics gives you ability to model our reality. Oh, you shoot a cannon up into air, and the barrel is up at a certain number of degrees, and the velocity is a certain amount of velocity, and we can provide some mathematics that will say just where that cannonball will hit the ground and how high will it go and how much does it slow down as it go through the air and all of that stuff is just a matter of mathematics. 
So the reason that mathematics seems to be the language of nature is because a virtual reality was built out of a rule set that was primarily based in mathematics. So you're going to end up with stuff that has causality. And that causality in a world like ours, three-dimensional, which is all about quantity, you know, that causality is, is going to, you know, is going to define the math. So we, you expect this physical causality to be describable by mathematics. Now, mathematics doesn't necessarily describe it precisely, but it describes it closely. Our virtual reality. But would you say the LCS it, itself exists based on math? Not that it exists based on math, is that it discovers math as it evolves. So it's not like okay. it was made of math, no. But math is an obvious symbols. Um, you know, math, you know, as you know math, as you learn math, it's a manipulation of symbols. These symbols mean things. Okay. And you manipulate them according to the rules of math, which is the rules of the logic of quantity. So then you can assign these symbols mean something like H in the equation defining how high the, the cannonball goes has an equation after it. H equals that it is a function of time. And as time goes on, the H goes up. And then as time goes on, it goes down. So you have this mathematical function that goes up a while, then goes down a while. Uh, that's, we use math. But no, this, the system isn't made of math. The system found that math was something that helped it lower entropy because it was a very powerful, useful thing. It could create with it, see? So it's not just that math puts numbers in an order, one, two, three, four, five. It's that math is useful for creating things that create even lower entropy, like this virtual reality helps people lower their entropy, you see? So math now is, a, is, is in the causal line of helping people lower their entropy. So math is a low entropy discovery. So the consciousness system discovers math because it's there and it's something that uh, can be counted. Ones and zeros can be counted. And then it discovers binary. Then it discovers, you know, computing. And it's just a lot of discoveries. Much Is it logical? We. Oh, sorry. Is it logical that an even higher source invented the LCS? No, that is not a logical uh, deduction. It doesn't have anything to do with it. The, the system was consciousness. Consciousness lowers entropy. Mathematics is a tool for lowering entropy. And it, it created the tool. It realized the tool. It developed it, found that it was helpful. I mean, after all, if you're a ones and zeros kind of person, then math is something you're going to you're going to end up with. All right. Thank you. Um, next question from the MBT forum. Now, it's it's to do with music. Now, we've, we've uh, talked about you experiencing other PMRs, and there's one particular one where music is their language. So... 
the first question is, let's say you and someone else who can go out of body, go out of body together. Since everything is consciousness, can you create music out of thin air for you and your friend to enjoy just by thinking of the song? Or how does that work? And if you do create music in an out-of-body state, does it sound just as real as here in this virtual reality? Yeah. Well, sure, you can do both. You are consciousness. You can create information. That music is information. And the sound of that music is how you interpret that information. And yes, you can be out of body and you can hear music. Now, I've never done the experiment, like you've gone out with somebody and you hear music and they hear the same music you hear. Uh, I don't know how that would work out because music is, in that case, is personal. It's not like saying, hey, do you see that thing over there? And they say, oh, yeah, you mean that tall yellow thing? And you go, yeah, that's the one. See, that's something that you're sharing visually. But music in your head is kind of in your head. Whether that would go into the head of the other person, I guess probably not. That's still your head. You're not necessarily sharing all of your thoughts. You're sharing a shared journey, you see. So I don't know. I, I haven't done that experiment, so I don't know for sure how that experiment would work out. Now, if you had an intention to send music to somebody telepathically and you had music in your mind and you sent them some music, if they were very receptive, they would probably hear what you sent. If they were normally receptive, which is not too receptive, but somewhat receptive, they would probably get a little bit of it. They might catch just a tune, but you know, not all of it, just pieces of it. So if you sent them a little snappy tune that was easy to remember, that wasn't too complicated, that'd be a good experiment. And then go and see if uh, they, they're humming that tune or they got that or that little, uh, you know, that little set of maybe four or five notes uh, got stuck in their mind. That would be a good mind to mind transfer, you know, a good test in your telepathic skills. So sure, you can make up music because you're consciousness. You can make information. You can create information. You can interpret. You can receive information. You can send information. And you can create information. So sure, you can create music and you can hear it. And I think a lot of the great composers probably heard the music in their head long before it ever turned out, you know, on paper with notes. Well, his second question, and this, this pertains to an experiment, I think I remember you may have done. Can you have music play in another virtual reality? that are songs from this virtual reality. Will other beings take notice of this and experience the song as well, including a friend who may be, who maybe is on this uh, out-of-body experience with you? Yeah. Yes, if that's your intention is to broadcast, it's not just in your mind, but you, it's not just a personal experience, but you want to broadcast. And then what you're doing is trying to telepathically connect your, your uh, music to, everybody else. And if you happen to be in a place where telepathy is the fundamental way that everybody communicates, well, then of course they'll get it, you know, because that's the way they communicate. If you're in a place like we are here where telepathy is happens all the time, but it's under the table mostly. People aren't too aware of it. They get it in, the, in their uh, subconscious. 
more than in their conscious mind, then you know, they may not be aware of it. So it just would depend. But yes, broadcasting telepathically to, you know, telepath, telepathy doesn't have to just be between A and B. It can be from A to, you know, B, C, D, E, and F. It can be for multiple receivers. So sure, that would work. Okay, his, his third question, I think you've answered, how do you create music in another virtual reality or the non-physical? Can you just um, ask Source to play a, a certain song? Uh, you could ask Source to do it, but I think that wouldn't be creating it. That would be Source creating it, and you just uh, would like Source to play you a tune. They may or may not do that, depending on whether that was part of your growth or whether you were just, you know, uh, you know, whether it wasn't all that serious and wasn't in line with your growth. So you may or may not succeed with that request, but you can make music. You can make information. And that's just information that you interpret through the hearing sense or as a hearing sense. Sure. So you can make it up yourself. If you're, if you are able to create in music, then you could make up original tunes. If all you're capable of doing is not creating in music is just hearing music, then you would come up with probably tunes you've already heard. Or maybe you could take a bunch of things you've already heard and run them together in a novel way or change them in some way. But to create music, you probably need a little education and a little a little effort to get to the point that you can do that. It's probably not. Uh, but people hear things all the time. People will go out of body and hear orchestras playing and choir singing and and, uh, you know, hearing sounds, hearing music is not unusual at all for people who are who are out of body. All right. Thank you. Our next question is on problematic relationships. Thank you for answering my questions. It means a lot. I have a hard issue that I cannot work through. It's a relationship with my mother. I have great deal of anxiety, anger, blame, and frustration towards her. I also know that I have to resolve this puzzle on my own. I tried. I don't want to be that way. I tried to hypnotize myself to unconditionally love her. I don't get emotional feedback from my mom. I think I failed because of that. I looked into psychology and psychiatry. I improved my life and relationships. My mom problem is the one I can't crack. I distance from her now. Would you please give me advice on how to make peace with myself? Well, it sounds like she's done all the right things. Um, you know, you can't change another person that doesn't want to be changed. You know, people can only change themselves. So indeed, if a person is not going to respond to your efforts to give them an opportunity to change, then there's not too much you can do with that. And then the, if it's un, you know, if it's, if it's an unfriendly and a, and a, a, a difficult dysfunctional interaction, then you distance yourself. Just as she said, that's what she's done. She's, she tried, gave it her best shot. Mom didn't respond. So she's distancing herself. Now her question is about how can she let go of that situation? Um, 
There's a couple of ways. One is to really understand at a deep level that your mom's doing the best that she can with what she's got, that she's unhappy, she's miserable, and that she's not going to let go of that misery. She's going to cling to it uh, even uh, beyond your best, you know, your, your best efforts to help her let go of it. In that case, just see her that way and have compassion for her in her dysfunction, in her misery. Just, it's sad, but it's the way it is. And accept it and let that be. And if you can get to that point, then you probably won't have a problem dealing with it. It'll just drop away because you'll just accept her as she is. And you will see her from time to time, you know, holidays and other times. You'll see her. And when you do, you'll be happy. You'll give her a hug. You'll say a few nice things. And then you probably won't stay long and you'll leave. And that'll be kind of the relationship that you'll have with her. Maybe you'll do that fairly often. You'll just go see her two or three minutes, you're gone. But while you're there, you're very positive. Stay positive. Don't get trapped in her negative mind games. Just stay positive. Now, if it's not that easy for you to just uh, say, well, mom's doing the best she can and have, and have compassion for her and let her go, then you can try some other techniques that will help you maybe get to that point. One of them um, is write your mom a letter, but you don't have to mail the letter. This is not really about communicating with your mom. It's about you getting everything out and getting all your feelings out and saying them. So, sit down and write a long letter. And it could be a long letter, you know, it could end up even being a book that you publish one day, you know, me and my mom, you know, but you write a, you write a letter and you tell her exactly how you feel. You know, you tell her that you love her because you can't help that. She's your mom and that you really would like a good relationship, but there's certain things that just, you know, that's why you don't stay around and just tell her everything that you'd like to say to her and write it down. Because the writing down will help make it real for you rather than just something that's buzzing around in your head. So that's why I say write the letter instead of just go over this in your mind. The letter makes it more concrete. And we deal with concrete things much better than we deal with abstract things. So write it down, make it concrete. And when you're done, let it go for a while and see if some inspiration doesn't come a month or two later to add to it and to embellish it a little bit and just keep going like a diary almost. And you write and you'll know when you're done, when you've said it all and you don't have anything else to say to mom, you'll know. And at that point you could mail it or you could just set it in a drawer. And uh, maybe whenever you're thinking about mom and feeling wistful, like, gee, it's too bad. I can't really have a, a, a relationship with her. Then just go read your letter. And, uh, that may be a device that will help you get there. It's a device that is often used for people dealing with their parents. So do that and see if that doesn't help you get to the point that you can just accept that they are who they are. They're probably not going to get any better. And it's not really your job to make them better. Well, you gave it your all. You, you tried, didn't work. Now let it be. 
Now, if you decide, well, I'm better now, I could do better, then go try again. That's okay. You can try another time and another time after that. But realize that it may not work. So give it your best try, and if it doesn't work, then let it go. You can do that as often as you like. Just don't get sucked in to that negative story. And if you can't, if it's so negative that it's unpleasant, and you can't change the subject, then it's time to leave. So that's, you know, that's the best advice to, to deal with it. Is, uh, if you can't do it directly, then write the letter. All right, Tom. Um, our next question um, comes from Ash O as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on machine learning, specifically how it's the study of the theory of information processing? Do you see its usefulness in demonstrating certain aspects of the nature of reality? Any comments on game theory and how the evolution of consciousness might be the same thing? As someone who is well-versed in complex systems, what are your thoughts on backpropagation? Is mean-squared error the best solution to learning? Are there some other architectures of systems that could help us design neural networks or other useful tools for data processing. Now, there's a, quite a few questions in there. there. There's a whole lot. Well, I'll, I'll just kind of go down the list. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> That'll probably take us to the end, right? We're only uh, yeah, yeah, uh, should a, few, do. a few minutes, so I'll have to work on that quickly. Okay. Um, machine learning, yes. It's, it's, uh, it is very interesting. It probably will, in time, lend insight to how consciousness works. Um. It uh, it is basically information processing. You know, machine learning is how you know learning is a what a helpful way of processing information. You learn from it. You get information, and it helps you. It helps you to deal with information you're going to get in the future. So it changes. You have to make a change. You take in information. You assess the information. You make changes, perhaps, to how you take information in or how you assess it, and you get in more information. So learning is a, is a cumulative thing, and it requires a consciousness or something that approaches a consciousness. So machines learn in very uh, limited ways for the most part. They take in information like we do, and they assess it, and they change their algorithms accordingly, and then that is learning. Okay, well, we do something like that as well. But that is just one of the things we do. You know, we have that process, but we do a lot more. You know, we have we have intuitive learning. We, we get information uh, through intuitive channels that the machine does not. And we can we can do uh, integration of various kinds of information probably more easily than most machines these days can but you know better machines will be will be built that is taking information and seeing connections between them that's more difficult to do algorithmically because a lot of that seeing the connections in between them is really not a algorithmic process or a logical process it's an intuitive process 
and machine doesn't have our intuition, so it's just not as as good as doing integration of different kinds of information and pulling out the value of that integration. A lot harder to do with logic, much easier to do with intuition. All right, so we got down to some, uh, so sure, it will, you know, one day we will have conscious computers, but you don't get a conscious computer by building consciousness into a computer. You build a computer that has free will to make choices, and those choices are interesting enough that an IUOC would, wouldn't mind making them, which means they're interesting enough that an IUC could help evolve itself by making those choices, in which case an IUOC or free will awareness unit is going to log on and start making the choices for that computer. So now you'll have a conscious computer. And the only difference between that consciousness and our consciousness is that it's a different IUOC. It's just like, you know, your consciousness and my consciousness is different IUOCs. So it'll just be a different avatar. The computer will become a, a different kind of avatar for consciousness. Okay, so that will be the conscious computer. That's how you get a computer to be conscious. Now, let's see. He asked about some other things. Uh, um Yes, uh, game theory and how the evolution yeah. of consciousness might be the same thing. Um, also, uh, back, back yeah, back propagation, meet squared error. Or is that best solutions to learning? Not necessarily. The, those things are are some of the um, tools used in making uh, uh, neural networks. Okay, back propagation is a way of of moving information into neural networks for learning. That's, that's a simple way. You know, we're just starting to learn how to make good neural networks. And that is one way that's been successful. But is that the best way? Probably not. You know, this making of neural networks is in its infancy. And it would just be a bad guess to say that some technology that's in its infancy has already, has already optimized itself to the you know, to the best and most optimal processes possible, I'd find that unlikely. So there are probably much different ways of doing it that will eventually be shown as more optimal, but at least it is a way that worked. And if you wanted to design this computer that a consciousness might log onto because it had free will, one, it can't be algorithmic because algorithms aren't conscious. Algorithms are what we call hardwired. You know, some some insects and some things are just hardwired. They do what they do because that's what they do. You know, it's, it's a, you know, like when a doctor hits your knee in just the right place with that little rubber hammer, you know, your leg pops out. Well, that's because that's hardwired. You trigger that nerve and that muscle contracts and makes that leg jump. It's nothing you think about. It's not a conscious choice of yours. That's hardwired. It's in your biology. Well, some, most animals have a fair amount of hardwiring. We humans have some hardwiring too. Hardwiring often <clears throat> has to do with instincts and and uh, and our genetics as part of our hardwiring. And we can we can modify some of that hardwiring hardwiring with our minds. You know, uh, some the the clam that pulls in its foot because you touch it. If that's all hardwiring, then and not a choice then it's going to be hard maybe for that clam to modify that because a clam doesn't have a whole lot of mental space to work in. 
So anyway, uh, if you want to design that computer, you'd probably need to have a an array of um, what we say uh, neural networks. You'd have to have a whole array of many neural networks, and some of them would be more specialized to some functions than others. Think of our brain as has a whole lot of different functions in it. The brain's not just one monolithic thing. It's got you know the the sight part, the hearing part, you know the the abstract part, the concrete part, the fear, the fight and flight part, et cetera, et cetera. We've got all these different pieces, and you'd have to have probably twenty or thirty or fifty different neural networks, some of which were generalized, some of which were specialized for certain work, all working together and passing things back and forth to each other. In other words, something very complex, even if they all were still working with, you know, backpropagation and mean squared error as a way of, of uh, you know, passing the information back from which to learn. Again, there will be things probably cleverer than that that will develop in the future, but even just using that. So if you had such a thing, and if what you trained it to do was make moral choices, make ethical choices, consider events, and it had enough information that it could decide what the right thing was to do or the wrong thing to do. So don't make it just to do something like flip a switch in a factory, which we have things doing that. That's not something a conscious would want to log on to in order to uh, be conscious of stuff. It would have to have choices that were significant in a, in a space that would help a consciousness evolve itself, go toward becoming love. So it would have to make ethical choices. So you develop a, a neural network that makes ethical choices based on situations and for its, you know, in its reasoning. And you may have something that a consciousness would want to connect with. So let's say that that computer is, uh, <clears throat> something that's going to, uh, say, run the electrical grid for the whole East Coast. And you're going to have a neural network that's going to do that. Well, there are ethical choices in there. The power goes off. And who, who gets the power first? Hospitals? Maybe. Nursing homes? Maybe. Certainly not just, you know, residences with generators, you know, wouldn't be the first ones to get power back. So... There's moral choices to be made there, ethical choices, but it would have to make those non-algorithmically. If it just went into an algorithm and said, oh, hospitals go first, okay. It would have to understand situations and needs and how needs change. You would have to have information about, uh, you know, what kind of patients were in which kind of hospitals and where were they kept and which rooms which circuits needed to be activated first, and lots and lots of detail, but not in algorithmic form, in form that it could make a choice of what to do and how to do it best, you see. So if it had lots and lots of data, you know, you turn on on houses where people are ill, where there's old people who have trouble taking care of themselves, uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure you can imagine at least 100 or 200 things that, uh, you know, a turning the power back on would have some kind of ethical or moral or caring choice based in it. 
Well, if you had that kind of a system, then how would you do that with a neural net rather than with algorithms and just brute force if-then statements? So that's what you should think about if you want to build a conscious computer, is that sort of thing is what makes our avatar interesting to consciousness to log on to it. Now, I guess squirrels are conscious, and squirrels have a a, a, a piece of consciousness logged on to them, making squirrel choices, and they're learning and growing the same way. They can make bad choices and good choices. They can be friendly or not. You know, they can they can bite or not bite. They uh, they have choices, but that's a a much smaller decision space. So it gets a much smaller consciousness, if you say, a consciousness with much smaller decision space to it. So you make a neural net that has a very small decision space, and you'll get a consciousness maybe like a squirrel. You might not even notice whether it's conscious or not. You know, you get something at that level. If you make it to, if you give it a bigger and bigger decision space, then you'll get a bigger and bigger consciousness that logs onto it. I suspect already we have in universities uh, computers that have the consciousness of a of a spider, or the consciousness, you know, of a maybe a small bird or something like that. We've probably already got that, but we don't really recognize it or call it consciousness because it's not like us. So you know, we're consciousness and nothing. You know, we're conscious, nothing else is. You know, we kind of have that arrogant attitude, but we probably already have some conscious computers, they're just at such a low level of decision space that we don't recognize them as being conscious. So, yeah, work on that. It's an interesting problem. Absolutely. Well, we're just out. We are at the top of the hour. And that was a very interesting mix of questions. Uh, Thank you, everyone who submitted them, and thank you for answering them tom mm-hmm. thanks oliver and justin and yeah, they, we'll see you again <laughs> yeah they did start out as a very eclectic uh, group didn't they but all in all they were very <laughs> they interesting yeah. thanks everybody very thanks, thanks for putting it together tom campbell here i and mbt events hope you like this video We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured. We will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.